0: Alright, we are done with stanza six and on to the line by line analysis. So this one is going to be another that I feel is a little difficult for me to wrap my head around. But let's see if I can frame it before we start here. So Tolkien has introduced this concept of sub and in some ways it seems to me to be a bit subjectivist in the way, in, in the sense that we create reality by our attention, perception, conception of the things that we interact with and observe. Now, of course, there's a distinction here because Tolkien obviously does not want to equate that type of subcreation with the popular imagination of Satan, the fall of Satan particularly how it's described in Paradise Lost, that it all kind of stemmed from this pride and creative ambition. That just like I talked about how Saruman, by fracturing that white and wanting to embody every color, he wanted to... Go above and beyond his nature, what he was created for, and in some ways, that's appealing to us in our modern world. I can, I can admit that that's a very, that's a very attractive sentiment. This radical individualism that breaks through all constraints. Uh, this kind of Sartre. Or Camus type existentialism that just em- embodies that unlimited creativity and expression, but with but within the essential nature of this sub creator concept, it's all underneath the bigger umbrella of. God's creation. It's all within that structure. So in stanza 5, I didn't quite make this very clear, but in the middle of that stanza it says, Tolkien says, His world dominion by creative act, not his to worship the great artifact, man, sub-creator, the refracted light. So not to worship the great artifact. So we we aren't constituted in in a way that we thrive when we worship man, when we take this humanistic drive and place it at the top of our salience hierarchy, our value hierarchy, the, the things that we give attention to. If we place man and In the end, degree a single man or woman ourselves that that is, if we place ourselves at the top of this hierarchy and kind of subjugate everything under that, then, as I said, that's putting true reality into a box that we just can't keep contained guess you could say this is a bit like Pandora's box. (laughs) We don't want to, we don't want to open that box because we don't have the power to control the resulting explosion of creative potential and force. So that being said, I think we can move on to stanza six. First line, yes, wish fulfillment dreams, we spin to cheat our timid hearts, and ugly fact defeat. Okay, so as always, we gotta make it plain that ugly fact, ugly fact defeat, fact is capitalized here. So we have another one of those higher level umbrella terms that encapsulates all other facts in this category so ugly fact defeat he's talking about i think what he's talking about is our just the reality of our incapability of being that ultimate individual that transcends all constraints And outside of a religious perspective, it uh, quite often spins down into nihilism. Because in the end, we're all dead. Right? In the end, we if we look at it from that materialistic perspective, in the end, we're a collection of atoms that are going to... go go the way of the dodo and so there's this thing that atheists talk about a lot of times and even some serious thinking Christians ask themselves I should say any serious thinking religious system considers this question are we creating these wish fulfillment dreams only to treat only to cheat and create this illusion around the gross reality of existence that is ultimately nihilistic in this thought experiment so here when I first read that I was thinking well is Tolkien saying that these are just wish fulfillment dreams, he says in the first line. Yes, wish fulfillment dreams, we spin to cheat. So yes, he's saying yes, we do do this. But obviously we can't assume that he is a nihilist. So what does he mean here by we do we do indeed create these wish fulfillment dreams. So there's the reality of the religious ideal that is god in actuality and we've already seen in stanzas above that we have a dim echo of exactly what that true existence is so we have to create these dreams these concepts these illusions around the reality in order to kind of bring it down and make it accessible to minds such as our, such as our own. And they make it easier to believe in these things. Uh, a lot of, I'd say most, Christians like to think of God the Father as a beneficent, noble, bearded king, kind of a Gandalf-looking figure. Now, is that true? Is that what God is? I would hope that no one stops there when they think of God. (laughs) Maybe for some people that's good enough. And that, I, I wouldn't say that that's in and of itself some type of horrible thing to believe. But, if we try and put God into that box, that is a... That is a gross oversimplification of the reality of God. And it's a type of wish-fulfillment dream. But we have these timid hearts, and we have this ugly fact defeat. We're all going to die. We're all going to come face-to-face with that ominous extreme divinity that is God. Next line. Whence came the wish, and whence the power to dream, or some things fair, and others ugly deem? So, obviously this is a poem, so we got to kind of fill in the words here. So, ugly fact defeat. And then I would add, but whence came the wish. So he's saying, where do we get these intuitions? And where do we get these value judgments? And where do we get this intuition of transcendence, the soul? And uh, Lewis, in his apologetics works, he talks about how how you can't measure something without a reference. If we call something short, that's a relative statement. So we're comparing that to some ultimate measure. Some would say we take a yardstick. And we use that as a reference point to measure something. And then we say this is short or this is long in relation to that reference point. And I think Tolkien has that same idea just in the realm of values and ultimate uh, intuition. So where do these powers to dream come from? Where do we... in where does that intuition to call some fair and call other things ugly? Because for, for, for Tolkien, that's a real intuition. That's a real part of our nature. And that can't, for him, that can't really come from this materialistic, deterministic world. Nothing has value. There... This, this has been said this has been said a lot, but there's this idea where science can tell us what is, but it can never tell us what should be. So where do those comes from where do those come from? Next line. All wishes are not idle, not in vain. Fulfillment we devise, for pain is pain. So some things we do ease pain, make it more make that yoke a little lighter in the gospels Jesus says my yoke is light and so some, some things help with that and some wishes are don't in the end lead to a nihilistic point Next line. Not for itself to be desired, but ill, or else to strive, or to subdue the will. So, we have this this problem of pain, this theodicy, this, this problem of suffering that Lewis wrote a book on. It's very interesting, but here he's saying, what's the point of pain? What's, what is the... Why do we feel pain? Why do we suffer? And he says, not for itself to be desired. So there's this... I'm tempted to think that Tolkien, in what he observes in our modern world, sees this kind of masochistic drive. Uh, Freud Freud called it within this psychoanalytical perspective he, he called it the, the death the death drive and where does so pain is not for itself it's, it, it, it serves a higher function for Tolkien it serves a metaphysical function and here he says the options are that it helps us strive It shows us that we are not in a place that we would like to be that causes us pain. And if we work, we can get out of that state and have a cessation of that pain. Or to subdue the will. Here's another big Christian theological answer to this question is that we experience pain and suffering as individuals and as a collective, in order to gain instruction in, in order to grow, in order to show us that we are incapable of transcending pain and suffering and and strife. It says in, it says in Genesis when they when Adam and Eve when Adam and Eve leave the garden, God says, "You will." coil. There will be thorns that you have to plow through. Women will have great pain in childbirth. So there's, a, there's an aspect of, of that that's about showing where we land when we use our own will as wings. We end up flying a little too close to the sun, maybe. And with this individual and collective suffering, I've been thinking about this too, is that we have, when I read the Old Testament, there are many times when when punishment and even Reward is given on an individual basis. We have Abraham being saying that his faith was counted as righteousness, but then we also have this collective conviction, this collective re- reward. The Hebrew people make a covenant with God and enemies come in and raid, destroy, rape when they have not kept that covenant. And for our modern world, that's hard to take. That's hard to take because we think about a baby of maybe the tribe of Levi. Some baby that we would just see as completely innocent. Being tossed off some Tossed off some, in, some, in, some embattlement, or thrown away. But it's also an interesting question to ask whether whether we can look at punishment and reward merely within this individualistic perspective, because even with our perceptions and conceptions as we we're talking about there's there's the individual aspect and then there's also the collective aspect that creates all of that and if we're going to say someone is guilty and deserving of punishment all of that is just bound up in this complex this complex integration of the individual and the collective bit of a digression there, but let's get on with it. Or else, to strive or to subdue the will. Next line. Alike we're graceless, and of evil this alone is dreadly certain. Evil is. Alike we're graceless. Now, well, here we could, we could say this is a generic Christian sentiment that we are we are guilty and there's this idea of original sin that within this integration of the collective and the individual we have sentiments and attitudes actions that are driven back from the third and fourth generation right the old testament says their sins will be upon them to the third and the fourth generation when i was when i was a little younger i hated that verse <laughs> because i i saw it as something where how can how can someone's great 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 grandson be found guilty because of the sins of his his ancestor but We have these ideas in modernity that are completely reflective of that. We talk about things like systemic racism. We talk about things like class conflict and different cultural sentiments that go along with different economic conditions. And those are very driven by the actions of our ancestors. And by us, in relation to our children and our grandchildren. So, in a more natural, causal kind of way, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Alike we're graceless, and of evil this alone is dreadfully certain. Evil is. So that's that's one thing that through. Every philosophical writing that I've come in contact with, uh, along with all the theological pieces that I've read, Apologetics, everyone accepts that suffering is real. Evil is real. They They may not call it evil. There's so many words for it, but... This dissatisfaction, this from the Buddhist perspective, this striving, this this feeling of uncompleteness, this unfulfillment is universal. We might even call it again this Kantian idea of the universal subjective. It's never going to be the same concept for any one person, but we all have an idea of things that we suffer from, that we view as very, very much less than ideal. So, of evil this alone is dreadfully certain. Evil is. So there we go. We're going to start from there and hopefully flesh that out a little bit as we go on through this poem. All right. That's stanza six.